0: Hello and welcome to The World Ahead from The Economist, I'm Tom Standage. During my career at The Economist, I've reported from all over the world, from Kampala to Tokyo and from Silicon Valley to Shenzhen. In each case, I went looking for clues in the present day about what the future might hold. For this series, I'm going a step further. A vortex in the space-time continuum has enabled me to travel to the year 2042, or at least one possible 2042, to report directly from the future on four different topics. Food, health, education and climate technology. Once you've heard my report from the future, we'll return to the present day to talk about the chances of that particular scenario coming to pass and, where necessary, how we might avoid it. In this episode, we're considering the future of healthcare. So pop yourself up on the bed over there and prepare to be transported to the year 2042. The future will see you now. It's early in the morning at the Queen Elizabeth Hospital, and the first patients are arriving for their annual medical scans. Hello, are you looking forward to your scan? Uh No, not really. You know,
1: no one enjoys it. It's sort of like going to the dentist. But, you know, it keeps you healthy, so it's got to be done. Uh, yeah, it's quite relaxing, actually. And it doesn't
2: hurt. Yeah, so I can attend a few of my meetings whilst in some of the screening machines, but it's difficult to take time out of work. (laughs)
0: The introduction of regular full-body scans as part of the transformation of England's National Health Service into the National Wellness Service a decade ago has helped to improve health outcomes for millions of people. A battery of scans and tests, along with the widespread use of health trackers built into rings, wristbands, watches and headsets, mean that many conditions, including heart disease and cancer, can be caught early and treated effectively. But despite the switch in focus from diagnosis and cure to monitoring and prevention, inequality in health outcomes persists. Some people are able to pay more attention to their health than others or can afford to spend more on devices and services that monitor their health. Not everyone can afford to miss half a day of work to have a scan. Many people dislike the process or distrust medical staff, so they end up being scanned less often or not at all. And what do you think about people who prefer to stay away from all of this?
1: Uh, Well, that's their right, isn't it? I mean, you know, there's even some doctors who won't be scanned, so I guess everyone can decide for themselves.
0: But can they? In England, the Conservative nationalist government is challenging this view... The wellness minister, Natalie Wright, says people who are not being scanned are now placing an unacceptable burden on the wellness system, which ends up paying much more to treat them than it would have if their conditions had been diagnosed earlier. She has proposed making regular medical scans compulsory and denying free state-funded medical care to anyone who has not had a scan in the past two years. So how far should governments go in the name of keeping people healthy? I asked Natalie Wright, what exactly is she proposing?
2: Well, people expect the government to provide medical treatment when they become unwell, but not everyone is doing their bit. They need to uphold their side of the deal by looking after themselves, monitoring their health and so forth. And even if they are too lazy to do any of that, they should at the very least go in for an annual medical scan, so that any problems can be caught early at lower cost to the taxpayer.
0: So you're proposing to deny all access to the National Wellness Service to anyone who's not had a scan in, what, the previous 24 months?
2: It may be 24 months, it may be 18 months, and we may start by limiting access just to some forms of treatment, such as personalised cancer therapies. They are very effective, but they are also very expensive. So it is right that they should only be available to people who really deserve them.
0: So the main aim here then is to save money rather than improve outcomes.
2: There are just too many people who aren't doing their bit. And they are increasing costs for everyone, as well as endangering their own health. We have reached the point now where we need to provide stronger incentives for people to comply with the scanning programme. Reducing health inequality means getting everyone on board. And some people may need an extra push. That is what we are giving them.
0: But isn't health inequality due to other factors? Many people on low incomes, for example, can't afford to take a day or half a day off to go and get a scan. Wouldn't it be better to make more scans available outside working hours, say, or provide more flexibility when you're booking a scan?
2: This government has delivered a world-leading booking system accessible through all major headset platforms – employers are required to give people time off work for medical reasons there's just no excuse
0: but won't your policy discriminate against pensioners or mothers with young children who may find it difficult to travel to a scanning centre and won't that make health inequality worse
2: look important things in life like health and education require people to make an effort in order to reap the benefits
0: so how will this policy be enforced in practice
2: then It's very simple. We'll be sending out reminders to people to have their scans through various channels. One option is to create an enforcement team to visit people and remind them of the importance of having their scans. Then when someone gets on well, we will be able to see when they last had a scan and then their treatment options will be adjusted accordingly.
0: Well, some of your opponents have suggested that a sort of softly, softly approach would be more effective and that all you're going to do is make people more suspicious of the wellness service, particularly if you have this team that goes around knocking on people's doors.
2: This is a softly, softly approach. We are encouraging people to have their scans and we are telling them what will happen if they do not. They still have a free choice. This government believes in personal freedom, but... We also believe in responsibility.
0: Natalie Wright, thank you very much for talking to me. Thank you. (laughs) Right, I've now travelled back from 2042. I'm back in the present day and with me are Natasha Loder, our health policy editor, and Dr Axel Heitmuller, Managing Director of Imperial College Health Partners and a former advisor to the British government. Welcome to you both. Hello.
1: Hi, Tom. So, Axel, what did you think of uh, of my trip to 2042? Very exciting indeed. Uh, look, I mean, is there any doubt in my mind that we will have more data about our you know, health? No, absolutely not, right? I probably know more about my central heating system than I know about my, my my health at the moment. So that will definitely come. The question is, is it meaningful data? Can we do anything good with it? And I think you're absolutely right to highlight the sort of trade-offs around inequality. You know, should we force people to uh, consider their health Absolutely, we probably should. The only question is how, right? Is compulsion the right way to do that or are there better ways? The only thing I probably fundamentally disagree with is that I firmly believe that healthcare will move towards people's homes and away from the sort of traditional healthcare settings that we have at the moment. So we're probably not going to travel into health scans. Scans are coming to us. Uh, COVID has given us a bit of a glimpse of the future. Uh, we're doing tests uh, over breakfast tables and so on. Natasha, what did you think?
3: Gosh, what a horrible, terrifying future that is. But I think it's probably not going to come to pass quite that way. And as Axel says, healthcare is coming to us rather than the other way around. But the question is how many people are going to really engage with all these sort of electrical doodads? And to what extent do we want to be walking around streaming health data constantly to our doctors? And I think probably the answer is for most of us, We won't want to do
0: that all the time. So I think there's a lot to talk about. (laughs) OK, well, we'll be digging into those questions right after this. In the 2042 that I visited, large-scale monitoring of people's health had allowed for a shift in emphasis from treatment towards prevention. Natasha, to what extent is this idea of a greater focus on wellness already manifesting itself in health systems and health policy today?
3: Well, this is an eternal debate um, in health policy about the emphasis you put on prevention and the emphasis on treatment. There's an impression in the general public that actually we're doing a lot on prevention these days, but actually I don't think we are. I mean, we certainly do a few more health checks for things like diabetes and high cholesterol and things like that. But when you introduce a sort of health screening activity nationally, you have to be really sure you're not going to pick up what's called a false positive, if you like. And this is an interesting debate that's arisen around the Apple Watch, for example. People are buying these consumer devices and you can actually test for something called atrial fibrillation. And lots of people have turned up at their doctors saying, well, my watch says I've got AFib, as it's called. And the problem is, is that sometimes we just don't know what to do with that data. It's not a test that a government has rolled out. It's something that Apple's rolled out. So I don't think necessarily prevention is this sort of panacea that it's often cracked up to be. Certainly, it is when you you know it comes to things like cancer, for example. But we've just been through a pandemic, remember, and that's not something that prevention is very helpful for.
1: So, so interesting. I, I agree with Natasha. And, and interestingly, it's not just the false positives that we should worry about; it's also the false negatives, right? So the the the, the sort of um, false sense of security that you might be in. If you're wearing one of these devices and it's basically you know not 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 giving you a signal that something is wrong so we 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 have to sort of watch both elements the kind of false positives and false negatives and and for most devices the science is not quite there right um they just don't work in a clinical sense we have a, a much much longer way to go the example that natasha picked about irregular heartbeats is actually quite interesting because not the apple watch but other devices have been prescribed by the nhs And people are starting to use them. What we found when we wrote them out wasn't so much that the technology was wrong or it would give you bad insights or the wrong insights. The trouble was they wouldn't integrate into existing GP systems. They would spit out a PDF. You know, PDFs are not searchable on on GP systems, et cetera. So you couldn't really integrate them into workflows. So technology is only half the answer. Even if the science works, we somehow have to build the roads that this kind of stuff can travel on and not just obsessed with the cars, um, i.e. the kind of applications. Now let's talk about inequality as well. Um Clearly,
0: these devices are quite expensive. Uh, Not everyone can afford them. So even if they do work, not everyone is going to have them. And also it's the case, and it always has been the case, that wealthier people have had access to better health services. How is the availability of more data, more new devices, more new diagnostics, how is that likely to affect health inequality going forward? Will it necessarily make it better or worse? That's a question for Axel.
1: Well, I mean, on the affordability point, if we really believe that a smartwatch does anything good, They're not that expensive, so you probably can give them out. So I I don't think the affordability issue of the device is going to be the problem. The problem is going to be the use and whether people stick with it and the behavioral aspects of this. But if you look at inequality, then obviously there's sort of two aspects. So one is the underlying drivers of inequality. There's a beautiful depiction of this when you look at obesity. Someone has mapped all the drivers of obesity. It's a sort of spaghetti diagram, which is mind-boggling, and there aren't any easy answers. We're spending... I think £140 billion on the NHS. We spent £3 billion on prevention and public health. You know, that's 2% of that budget. So, you know, just getting people through scanners is not going to resolve the kind of inequality issue. We, we, that will require a completely different magnitude of investment and, and rethinking. And so the question is, in the transition from the one sort of paradigm that we're in, which is frankly a sickness system, to one that cares much more about preventability, where is that funding coming from to make that possible? That's that's very striking. Three billion out of 140
0: billion as uh, spending on prevention. If it's not just uh, more spending on more technology and and more scans, what are the other things that need to change in order to move people towards wellness and potentially reduce that inequality, Natasha?
3: One of the things I think that I find really interesting is if you look in any sort of moderately large city and you look at the wealthy postcodes and the poor postcodes, you'll find – A longevity difference of about 10 years. That's absolutely massive. And, you know, you'll find it really hard to get a healthcare system to address those differences. What you've got fundamentally are people who are wealthy, resourced, they go and see their doctor, they look after their health, they watch their weight. And then you have people who are not in such a fortunate position. And, you know, when we have these discussions about the nanny state and the price of alcohol and sugar taxes, what this is, is governments trying to find levers to sort of make the environment that we all live in one that's more healthy or at least promotes health. But there really are no easy solutions to getting people to look after themselves. And certainly health systems themselves struggle with this. I guess the one thing that health systems might do, and that is perhaps pay more attention to how people are living and what their living conditions are. So, for example, if you've got a child who keeps coming to their doctor with asthma, then it might be appropriate to ask questions about... Do they have a bed sheet that prevents dust mites from getting through their mattress, for example? And if not, perhaps one should be prescribed. But those are things that kind of involve health systems and doctors actually finding out more information about people's living situations. And not everyone wants to go there, but you could do that.
0: Okay, well, Let's talk a bit about surveillance and the extent to which people are willing to provide the sort of information they're not providing now. We saw distrust of health providers and interventions with the COVID vaccines for a variety of reasons. If health services want to place more emphasis on prevention and wellness in the future, how can they reassure people that it's in their own interest
1: and isn't snooping? Yeah, and that's a key question for all of this, right? Because non, none of this will work without more data. So we, we have to take that for granted. There will be more data. So what we have to deal with is is the kind of privacy concern. And we know pretty much what doesn't work, and that is government just going out and sort of, you know, announcing that all kinds of data will be shared, et cetera. However, we do know that if you go to the public and involve the public in designing the systems, the rules, including the commercial deals that could be made on the back of some of this data, they have very sophisticated, sensible views. And that takes more time, more effort, but this kind of deliberative democracy, as it's now works really well. And we have seen this in other areas, right? We have seen this in Ireland about abortion rights and, and, and gay rights. We have seen this in Japan on pension reforms. You have to make an effort and make the public part of the solution. So that will work on vaccines and that will work on data as well. But unless we, we make that effort, we will probably have these conversations about whether we should share data and what should happen with our data forever.
0: Natasha, are there any lessons from the experience of the of the pandemic and in particular, you know, trying to get people to go along with various public health interventions that can be applied more broadly here about how to bring the public with you?
3: One of the big take-home messages is that you know a certain amount of lack of trust is baked into every country. And there is only so much you can do to get people to say, take vaccines, right? You know, the more that you push them on people, the less trust you're going to have. And even in China, right, where people are used to doing what they're told, actually, you know, the old people haven't really vaccinated at anywhere near the level that they need to have. And even China, which is enforcing these extraordinary lockdowns, right, on their citizens, is not going as far as saying you have to be vaccinated. What that tells you is that, When it comes to people's personal health and their bodily autonomy, that is something that people take really seriously. And so I just think that health is just one of those areas where you have to tread very carefully and do everything you can to make sure that people trust what you're doing.
0: In my report, we heard about the idea of making free healthcare in countries with socialised medicine uh, dependent on allowing a certain amount of this health monitoring or scanning. How feasible do you think some sort of quid pro quo like that is in future, as the cost and the complexity of of health interventions goes up?
1: So, sort of blunt example that was given in the in the scenario, probably is not going to work particularly well for obvious reasons. But this question about the right balance between rights and responsibilities in health is absolutely pertinent for the reasons that Natasha just set out, right? I mean, health is us. Health is every bit that we do every day, right? We have this strange concept that this healthcare system that Beveridge and Bevan conceived, which was really just a sickness system that didn't care about the root causes of ill health, That that is healthcare. That is not healthcare. That is a sickness model. What we need to move to is one that actually does worry about the root causes. But the root causes are very much about us and our you know daily decisions that we make. Now technology could play could play a role. So if you take some of the kind of really cutting edge um, developments in omics, for example, or proteomics, which is you know shows you everything about your proteins they keep changing, right, depending on what you do in your daily life. Now, if you could see that in a timely manner, and it was accessible to you as information, then maybe that would motivate you more than something you can't do anything about, like your genes. And maybe there's a prospect in a sort of medium to long term future that you have a heart attack if you don't stop drinking. That is not very motivational, because it's too far away. But if if we could give you information through technology that is much more near term, that rewards you for, for the right behavior, that might be a technological answer to this question. Whether there is also a policy answer, I think that that is sort of partly dependent on ideology and, you know, other aspects of wider policy making. It sounds as though you both think that the emphasis should be on carrots and not sticks. Broadly.
3: I think broadly, that's what we're saying. If you get to a system where people are getting penalised for, say, not going to the doctor once a year or whatever it is you expect them to do, I can't see that there are going to be any positive consequences with regards to sort of inequality. You're going to penalise the people who are struggling to start with.
1: That doesn't mean that you can't be more transparent about the consequences of ill behaviour, right? Why not publish what, for example, are the NHS costs why not publish how much I have consumed, right? So if we have more data, you could play back some of the consequence of using public services in a completely different way. Now, we have shied away from that in this country because the NHS is free at the point of care and we don't really like to talk about that. Actually, it isn't because, you know, we pay for it. But there are behavioural nudges that you can probably use to play some of that information back.
3: So you're saying that, you know, basically, if I got at the end of the year, I got a ping from the NHS saying, you know, Good job. You know, you only consumed £10 worth of healthcare a month for the last year or tusk, 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 your health expenditure was 74% over the average. Is that is that yeah, what you're talking ex- exactly. about?
1: Exactly. And, you know, if you combine that, for example, <laughs> with, a, with a sort of annual statement of what has happened to your data, to your point about transparency, right? So could you give right. people much more transparency on what actually has happened with their data? but also give them transparency about their, their use of public services. And if you wrap that up in some clever behavioural science, then I think that is more promising than, than the sort of wellness van appearing in front of your house and knocking on the door. Excellent. <laughs> um, so,
3: but hang on, Axel, on, there's one more question. I mean, you know, what about attaching financial rewards to that? I mean, if, I, if I'm getting some kind of voucher or some financial reward, is that fair?
1: So I don't know whether, so we can debate the fairness. Um, I, I wonder whether it's easier to go to the evidence because obviously private health insurance could, uh, has done that, right? I mean, you get, you get a lower premium if you do certain things. US employers uh, have been playing around with reward systems for their employees quite a bit. The evidence is very mixed and it doesn't necessarily work. And if you look at countries that have uh, insisted on vaccines, so, you know, the COVID vaccine, obviously we haven't insisted on, but we do insist on other vaccines. It's quite common that we say, you know, you have to have certain vaccines. And in some countries, that is enforced um, quite strongly. And the evidence, again, is not, it doesn't necessarily work.
3: So maybe we should, you know, be insisting that everyone walks 6,000 steps a day.
1: Or we should design cities in which you can
0: actually do that. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. I think this. So we're back to the, the back to the point that healthcare is just actually you know part of a much bigger, more complicated system. And, um, and just focusing on like, are you wearing a smartwatch, and how do we redesign the healthcare system? You you have to see it in that broader context. Finally, I'd like to ask you both what aspect of the future of healthcare are you most excited about and most worried about, Natasha.
3: Well, having said that we're not very good on prevention, I will say the thing that does most excite me is the idea that we'll be able to do liquid biopsies for cancer. And that is that you would have a blood test and it could sort of alert you to the presence of some kind of cancer uh, early on. I guess the thing that worries me most is as we get better at predicting your general health, to do with genetics and you know the conditions you have and your lifestyle it does occur to me that you may be able to come up with something like a death clock like something that would predict with a fair degree of accuracy you know how many years you had left you know give or take a few unexpected occurrences like buses running you over and maybe a cancer that you didn't expect that would be quite scary and worrying. But it's like, would you, would you want to know? I'm not sure if I would.
0: I see what you mean. So it's possible to have too much and too accurate information about your health. A scary prospect. What about you, Axel? What are you most excited about and most worried about?
1: Hard to disagree with the death clock being you know, a pretty <laughs> horrendous scenario. Um, so, so look, I'm, I'm naturally very excited about the, the, the prospect of collecting more data and doing meaningful things with it. Healthcare is probably one of the most data-rich public services, and yet we do almost nothing with the data. Uh, We don't turn it into information. And we could make huge leaps even now if we use that data in a different way. So I'm I'm very excited about that. We We need to do that in a sort of safe way and, you know, that can be done. The thing I'm most worried about is that we don't get to the future and that we're just stuck in this kind of sickness system forever and that we're not using the opportunities because I don't think there's anything inevitable in that shift happening. And there are big policy levers that actually need to change in order to get to that future in a meaningful way.
0: Great. Natasha Loder and Dr. Axel Heitmuller, thank you both very much. Next week on The World Ahead, I'll be considering the future of education and what happens if education can be personalised using AI. For more insights into the future and the present, including a special report on how wearable technology is transforming healthcare right now, you can take out a subscription to The Economist at economist.com slash podcast offer. Thanks to actress Laurence Bouvard for the voice of the Health Minister. Tom Pooley is the producer and Sandra Schmueli is the executive producer. The World Ahead was a Tempo and Talker production. I'm Tom Standage and in London, in 2022, this is The Economist.